0: Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Fire Hall Arts Centre in what is now called downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer here at the Fire Hall, and my guest today is Emiko Moreta. Thanks for having me, Donna. Emmy? Is that your preferred? The truth is that I do say Emmy,
1: and it's because I do not pronounce Emiko. Correctly. <laughs> because you don't pronounce it correctly. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so I, I
0: spell it Emiko. Yeah. But I usually say Emmy. Emmy. Well, we'll go with Emmy today so I don't make a mess of it. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here actually. Because it's like here we are in the center of uh what was kind of the radius I think of of where historic Japantown was, Chinatown, and then there was the indigenous people who were here as well. Of course, when this was being settled, this was their territory, and I think there was lots of interrelationship between the Japanese-Canadian community and the indigenous community at the various fishing, um, fi- fish uh, like Hastings Hastings, whatever that was. He was going to say Hastings Mill Store, but uh, there were lots of canneries down here. Canneries and mills, yes. So there was that connection between that community, the community right from the get go, I think.
1: A connection, but there's also a recognition by Japanese Canadians that we were settlers and we displaced. We represented the cheap labor down at the mill and in the canneries.
0: Yes. And here sits the fire hall <laughs> in the middle of this with Oppenheimer Park just down the street, which originally was used a lot by the Japanese Canadian community with the famous Asahi, Asahi baseball team. That's right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> anyway, it's great to have you here. And I wanted to ask before we leap into this dramatic pause has been created because we're in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic, which I'm sure most people are very familiar with, Um, and we were taking a pause in what we were doing here at the fire hall. So I'm curious about how the, um, since the shutdown in March, what you've been up to. We quickly hosted some town halls and got input from our
1: various stakeholders and uh, made the decision fairly early to cancel the public gathering and to figure out how we can still hit some really important points for Powell Street Festival. It's our 44th year. So for 40, this, this year, for the first time in decades, we won't be coming together and connecting. And one of the key pieces for all of our stakeholders was that community connection. The one time in the year where um, you meet new friends, you see old friends and family, and uh, and very significantly here in the Powell Street neighborhood.
0: Yeah, the, well, so right from the beginning, your board of directors went, okay, we're, the show will go on, but it will go on in a different way, as we say in the theater, the show will go on.
1: If I recall, we made the decision by the end of April, after the town halls. Or as we had the town hall conversations, it became evident that Uh, the timing in terms of the projected peaks and so on. It was just not going to be possible to wait and see how things, how the curve (laughs) flattened. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, no, I think that was a very wise choice because uh, obviously right now the curve seems to be heading back up again, which is not something that anyone was hoping would happen. That's right. And I I've been going I think to the Powell Street Festival since because I believe it started in 1977 is what my math says, um, and I've been going to the Powell Street Festival not every year but off and on since the since probably the late 70s, because that's when I kind of moved well was getting my way into the theater but also discovered this neighborhood, and I what I've always thought was fabulous about it was the variety of of events that you had going on but the fact that it really enlivened this whole community yet again and and it's almost and i'm sure for your community there's a sense of the presence of the ancestors if you will uh when this happens yes it's a
1: remarkable event and experience for people uh the the programming is diverse yes but so is the audience. We have people coming from the suburbs, we have people coming even from across the country who have connections to the Japanese Canadian neighborhood historically. And uh, of course, a core part of our community are the residents in the downtown east side. And that's a coming together that happens. Um,
0: that That's where the magic is. <laughs> Can you talk just a bit about how the festival started? I mean, I. I think why I ended up connecting more with it um, was because I believe Rick Shiomi was obviously involved in part of it, and we produced one of his well, we produced a couple of his plays here actually, and took one out on tour. But um, I think it was him that started to. I mean, I'd gone to the festival, but I didn't understand the significance of it. So. Well, ironically, they didn't either in 1977. It was to be a,
1: an, a, a special event commemorating the 100th anniversary of migration of uh, the first Japanese person, and uh, there was no looking back. It's happened every year since. Uh, it, at that time, it's interesting to note that um, the Japanese-Canadian population was dispersed across the country, and very few people came back because all of the property had been taken, taken. and so for those who were here, interestingly, there was a, the the larger part of the population were newer Japanese immigrants, and then these young social activists who had an interest in their cultural heritage, uh, and uh, were connecting with those newer immigrants. Wanting to learn the language, um, helping with uh, sort of uh, I guess um, immigrant services, teaching English, closing you know helping them navigate uh, society here in Canada, and uh, that was the birth of Tanari Gumi, the mm-hmm. Japanese Canadian Volunteers Association, which is the um, the the founding organization of Powell Street. They basically hosted that that centennial event in 1977 that became Powell Street Festival
0: at at that time do you know if um the Japanese because the Japanese language school was the only property that stayed within the Japanese community um because I, 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 there's something about the lease or i can't quite remember the history of it which i find quite fascinating actually there's a complex
1: legal um exchange that uh
0: uh, enabled the language school to regain title and when that happened was it do you, in the 70s was it op- operating at that point um I it, I believe it was operating at that point and mm. I also
1: think that the that exchange and the the reinstatement of the property was earlier than that it might right. have been as early as the 50s wow. late
0: 50s possibly well maybe I mean, not I, yeah no I'm, I, I'm certainly glad to hear that because when I heard the history of it I went how how is it that and I we won't talk too much about it, but I, I my question really is was to myself was how is it that properties were returned in the U.S. to the Japanese Canadian uh, Japanese American communities and they weren't here and then when I heard that Japanese the Japanese language school had actually had been retained by the community I went yay <laughs> <laughs> so obvious I mean really it um, wasn't the case for. Um,
1: any other uh, uh, entity or individual as I understand it. The only other interesting sort of property exchange of note is that Steveston very progressively invited Japanese people back to the community, and the Japanese cultural center that exists there is is, uh, city-owned, and run by Japanese Canadians, so you'll actually find year-round the Japanese Canadian culture, uh, or community in Steveston is really strong. And Powell Street is uh, has it, it's our Powell Street Festival's engagement in the downtown east side is, is um, how would you say? We're here, we're very present, but we're we we have a. Um, there's got to be a really smart word for this. We're in a, a uh, always in a state of, of seeking that sense of place, connection, and engagement. And what's been really exciting for me and my experience at Powell Street is to discover how this organization, since its beginning, uses social justice through the arts to find that connection. It's just been an amazing personal experience, discovery.
0: Well, I think it, I'm not sure that it was the last, um, I think it was was in 2014 when the first time the park was, well, the park's been taken over many times. But um, I was going to say that that might have been the first homeless camp there uh, when Powell Street, and and I could be wrong on this in terms of dates, but I remember reading um, about how the, the founders and the board of directors of Powell Street did not want to dislocate the people in the park because they had been dislocated themselves. And I thought, what an honorable statement and action, and that most um, societies would not consider that. So I was really in awe of, of that action and the fact that you actually, the festival actually worked around the encampment uh, as A- well. Around it and with. Yeah. Right, and that was my experience, and was
1: it last year? Yeah. You say last year in 2019 when the when the second wave. That's of, right. Of, yeah. Where where it's not just around and oh you're not there, but but how can we recognize that every year the the festival is a disruption? People um, uh, Oppenheimer Park is the living room for many people who live in this neighborhood, uh, and we come. And we create this, you know, we bring in a big crowd from different places. So we're guests here, and how do we actually uh, work in a way that's that I, I guess is um, well respectful, one, re- yeah, respectful <laughs> and um, includes people and really does some of the education work so that there's there's uh, mutual ease and respect between the different populations. Um, last year during the Tent City, we actually had uh, uh, at, we, we had programming to ensure that the well-being in the park in the Tent City um, uh, was maintained. So water wagons, uh, meals were being served once a day, and we created some job opportunities for people to help main, maintain their own space right in Oppenheimer Park. Uh, I think that that's a really key piece of how we um, how we work and and connect in the neighborhood.
0: Well, and I, I, I think people often forget that that park is a living room for this community. It's one of the few green space spaces in this neighborhood, and and not not to say that the tent city shouldn't have a place to be, but there is that challenge i think when it is there for those who live in That's the neighborhood right. to be able to access the park it's so
1: such a complex yeah, situation very complex. The, the housing crisis the opioid crisis and that that the situation the circumstances for people living in this neighborhood uh everybody's affected by uh really intensely by these various things and as you can imagine covid19 just increases that urgency for support
0: in terms of the response of the, when, when you took that initiative in 2019, um, and I think there was one other year that the, you weren't able to use the park, but I think the park was being redone The renovation, or yes. Renovated mm-hmm. or something. But when you took that initiative in 2019, did you hear anything from audiences or your people that came to the, the park uh, for the festival, either negative or positive?
1: People were very supportive, actually. They were very supportive, and it became, a uh, an opportunity to highlight the issues around the housing crisis and uh, and also people came down and had a really wonderful time the festival felt great we were mostly on alexander street and uh, the energy was fantastic
0: well i actually thought that was kind of an interesting way to do it because then people got a bit of a tour of the neighborhood and and i think um by bringing Uh, individuals into the neighborhood from all different uh, parts of the Lower Mainland and beyond, as well as all sorts of different cultures, people get a sense of the richness of the neighborhood and also a better take on what the challenges are as opposed to being afraid to face these things. And I I mean I think that's one of the big things. If if we can put all these people that have these problems in one place, we can kind of forget about them. And I, I I really applaud that action that you took, because it really, and, and people ask me as well about the fire hall bringing people into this neighborhood. And I go, well, why shouldn't they come into this neighborhood? It's a fabulous neighborhood. And yes, there is a community here. And yes, there are problems that are problems for everyone, not just for this neighborhood.
1: <laughs> that's that's so true. I have to say that my, my I, I mentioned earlier, it's been a, a very big personal uh, uh transition for me where I well learning the learning curve has just been unexpected I have a history and arts administration I knew I was taking on a festival and I wasn't so aware that in that basket of, there was a kitten of a festival but there was also the downtown east side and so my learning curve has been very steep I have to say that i through my experience in the downtown east side, I understand uh, something about community that I've never known in, in my life. Uh, looking out for people, sharing smiles, respecting one another is just
0: uh, such a powerful experience. Yeah, I find often when I uh, go out um, to my car because I'm I drive. It's a hybrid, but <laughs> that I often am talking to people and just the simple hello is, or a smile, uh, people are just so, um, well, I don't know if the word should be grateful, but it, the, the fact that you're actually engaging with someone who is not usually engaged with, um, people
1: are so real yeah. here, yeah. you know, you can't, most, most streets in this city, you can't walk down and have that kind of human connection and, Uh, but it's not enough it doesn't solve the housing crisis or the opiate crisis it doesn't create economic equity Uh, so then then you know i spend uh, uh, my my work kind of uh, pursuit in trying to understand how to constructively Contribute to those causes using arts and culture, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's a challenge because people quite often think of arts and culture as, or well, arts, the art specifically as an elitist action. But <laughs> uh, let's just talk just a little bit about you before you came to Powell Street. How did you get into arts administration? Why would you get into arts administration?
1: <laughs> uh, well, that was I. I got I suppose because the. Um, my my lack of self-confidence steered me to administrative support and um, and I've spent my career as an arts administrator in book publishing. I've worked in in classical music and and uh, different a variety of things. and uh, I find that at Powell Street Festival what's really exciting is the challenge I just mentioned
0: mm-hmm.
1: how do you use the, um, the, the the brilliance of artists to actually have a social impact
0: and a healing effect I mean I think that's one of the things that we're, we're well I particularly heard recently when we did the fest Dancing on the Edge Festival and had live performances here is how much people really need that uh, engagement with artists uh, to help them be creative, but also to help heal their souls or their anxiousness or whatever you want to say. So, I mean, I think the arts has tremendous potential as a healing tool, but also as a, a tool that 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 allows us to speak in on a perhaps a more l- level playing field. Or I don't know whether it, it's a I don't know quite how to word it either. It's well, there's probably a it's, smart word, but. It's okay. <laughs>
1: Speak a universal truth. Yeah, exactly. Then it doesn't matter yeah. what your ethnic background is, or your health situation, or economic situation. When an artist can is really connecting with their craft, that's what that's the, those. That's the energetic channel that they're opening, and everybody knows that it's un, unwavering. And uh, Powell Street Festival is a little bit reverse engineer and trying to find work that from the ground up which is a, uh, you know, the, the mix at Powell Street is grassroots community groups and professional artists, uh, avant-garde. You know, you'll see really contemporary stuff and very traditional. And uh, the bringing together of that combination, that diversity is a whole other piece that creates, uh, I think, points of entry for a lot of different people. And then you end up with this happening that is a collective experience that is remarkable.
0: And did it start, when it started, did it always have the um, the mix of amazing food? <laughs> uh, generally, the booths have some pretty amazing, uh, either, well, I know I always buy jewelry, <laughs> earrings, <laughs> um, handmade earrings, uh, um, uh, but also... Uh, then we have the martial arts from all ages and as you say we have you have music It, it did it always how 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 was it always that mix of all kinds of aspects of culture
1: uh yes absolutely and uh and then you can also look at some of the artists and see their their career path evolve through powell street festival um and it's also has It's identified people uh, across North America will talk about Powell Street Festival as really seeding the North American taiko culture only because a group came up from Los Angeles and the... uh, Jap- young Japanese Canadians here saw it, and uh, predominantly the women thought, "I want
0: that," right? Okay. <laughs> and started Katari Taiko. Katak- Katari Taiko, yeah. yes, and which led to other Taiko groups. And That's right. Spawned, spawned many, did a lot of many, many Taiko groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they did a lot of touring as well. It was sort of like a discovery for Canada that these. Artists had this skill. I mean, I remember yeah. when that happened. It was sort of like, "Whoa, okay." <laughs> People woke up to the fact that this was an art form. That's right. And then yeah. I think of Kokoro Dance, of course. Well, they've been here for a long time. Jay and Barbara per- performing at the festival. We've had shows that have been at the festival that got delivered. The Tashmi Project, for That's one. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I think it's been a fabulous. Um, Seed, seed place or seed ground and people come back which is fabulous is all the artists come back to the festival because of the respectful way you treat them but also because of the connection with their community I think.
1: That's right I've heard some artists talk about how emotional you know they've come from another province to Powell Street Festival and they're performing in this neighborhood and it's where their forefathers are from but they haven't had a connection. They come with whatever their craft is, and they perform, and it really, it um, it really moves people. So a, that's a special kind of tiny little result, <laughs> good turn that Powell Street Festival offers. It's fascinating also that Powell Street Festival are volunteers, and we're mostly volunteer run. Often they'll come uh, if they're Japanese Canadian. Maybe they were raised. For a few generations now, in another province, their lives bring them here, and they're looking for a way to connect with Powell Street neighborhood, where they're where maybe their uh, grandparents or great grandparents were from. So they get involved in the festival, and then the kind of work that we do, see, starts you know initiates this whole other engagement and education about the history of the neighborhood and um, and its future and it seeds this real investment in having a positive impact for everybody.
0: Well, I, um, my thought went off to the fact that um, I had a I think it was during the Tashmi project when it was running here there was a talk back after uh, after all of the shows and it what came up in one of them was that uh, someone had no idea that the Japanese internment had, had happened because uh, uh, it's not registered too much in our history books by any means. Um, and I have to confess that the only reason I knew about it was growing up in Alberta, people came from here to work the sugar beet farms. Right. Wow. And so uh, there was some reference to that by my family um, but it wasn't a historical study. So just for anyone that's listening out there, in case you aren't familiar with this, during the Second World War, after the uh, bombing of the um, Hawaii uh, Pearl by the Japanese... Pearl pardon? Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, yes, thank you. Uh, there was the move in, on the west coast of America and on, on, um, in, on the west coast of Canada to move anyone of Japanese heritage regardless of whether or not they had ever been to Japan, um, away from the coastline, which meant taking up all of the, all of the fishing ships, uh, fishing boats, I should say, uh, and relocating people to camps within the interior of BC, some of them that were terrible because they, uh, they weren't built to, for people to winter, winter in and the women and children were separated from their, generally from the, the men. So the men went to a work camp, and the women were sent to different places, including Tashmi and uh, a number of other places which around New Denver and Nelson. Um, and, of course, when the war was over— um, this is my short history, and it's a very short one, and I'm probably losing things— when the war was over, people were allowed to make a choice of going back to Japan, or eventually they were allowed to come back to the coast and most people didn't. Is that kind well, of that, a quick that, pricey?
1: Yeah, that's, that's very good. It wasn't until till, uh, people didn't start moving back until the early 50s, right. which it's 1949 officially, I think, that they were allowed to move back. But prior to that, it was move east or go to Japan. And as you mentioned, some people had never, they were born here, they had never been to Japan. So pretty major disruption in a uh, community and culture.
0: And a yeah. lot of people who didn't probably even, the younger people probably didn't speak Japanese even to That's go back true. to Japan. That's uh, true. I, I, I do, uh, when I was working on another project, it was dismaying to me to find out that the people that were in charge of relocating people, a lot of them hadn't been born in Canada. They were, a lot of the people who were in charge of Oh, we've got to relocate people. You mean, you mean the, the white people? That, that's right. I mean the white people. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that. How ironic. Yeah. Well, a lot well, of people came as settlers from Great Britain. Of and if they were aligned with the um, government in any way, they weren't necessarily required to have been born here.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, these days, Powell Street Festival, our advocacy and outreach uh, committee in particular, but uh, throughout the organization, we're really trying to think about uh, our accountability as settlers, because yes, we we you know we had this we have this bad disruptive, damaging experience, but we also came disrupted, here yeah. and uh, were you know and and dis- disrupted, displaced Indigenous people, and and it's not very interesting or productive to to get yourself stuck in an eddy of what's happened in the yeah, past yeah and uh, it's really fascinating kind of challenge to to figure out how to work with that history to hopefully do some good
0: well I think that's that's the way we all have to I mean the history has happened it it was a most unf- the whole If we look back the whole history of Canada has been rather unfortunate but this is where we are now, so how do we make it a more positive place for all? Um, and so I think the, the progressiveness of the Powell Street Festival Society and, and overall the Japanese-Canadian community um, is, is a very, it seems to me, are moving forward in a very respectful, progressive way about trying to be inclusive and in recognizing these oversights that have happened, yeah. more than oversights actually, but anyway, we won't go there.
1: So as we were building the telethon that's, that we're, we're yeah, let's doing talk in, about in that. lieu of the festival, uh, one of our challenges is how do you bring in such a diverse community when a lot of our stakeholders don't have access to a computer? and um, uh, And when the festival, and a large part of the festival, is about place. Mm. We're raising funds to launch a downtown uh, to be part of the downtown Eastside uh, community kitchen network so we'll have a powell street festival community kitchen that will fund peers downtown Eastside residents to prepare meals once a week and it where our campaign is going very well and i think that um we'll be able to maintain this as seed funding for a year to really figure out how to Really explore how to um, create, use the assets of Powell Street Festival, whether it's our experience and our cultural workers training program that we've been developing or our physical festival gear. How can we not just use it for a two day festival, but year round offer it up in a way that actually builds capacity and creates? works toward economic equity in the downtown east side. So we're, I'm very excited about it. And uh, uh, it also is going to be this interesting uh, exploration of how to create a communication network and how to find points of connection with residents in the neighborhood who are precariously housed or unhoused, aren't in the park. So the whole time we've been talking, I've been wanting to say how much I love Oppenheimer Park and its layered history. And um, right now, if you you go there, there's a fence that. Is. Uh, you can't even walk along the sidewalk no, no. and peer in. It is so aggressive and aggressive. Uh, uh, to me, it is. It hurts somehow Like <laughs> when I see it. and Well, I it's meant it's, to be an <laughs> open place where people gathered. Yes. This time of year, uh, we're gearing up for the festival, and I'm regularly walking through the park and saying hello to people, and they want to know, what are you doing here? And I say, well, we're getting ready, and here comes Powell Street. And it's an important moment where, where I, I see, over time, familiar faces, and uh, we're able to start scheming on projects together and so on. Right now, that's not possible.
0: Would it be something that you would think in the consider in the future of doing um, more events in the park over the year and one big Powell Street event? Before COVID-19 uh, hit, uh, we were in the
1: midst of community consultations to understand if Powell Street Festival had a permanent space in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. how could it... Uh, provide a constructive contribution? What kind of programming gaps or resources could we fill for the community, the current community? And um, I look forward to resuming that conversation and imagining what it might be. Over the last few years, we've always worked out of the field house in the park. And um, maybe one day we'll be uh, just around the corner here in the Mayakaiwa building or something. That would be Who great. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. We'd love to have but you But it here. <laughs> wouldn't be a dusty kind of historic commemoration. It would be something designed to really work forward with a larger, more diverse community to build equity for people, marginalized people in this neighborhood. We'd be basically finding a means of Uh, asserting our historic displacement as a as a way of making things better for everybody
0: well I think that's a fabulous goal and we would love to see you here (laughs) (laughs) year-round lofty ambitions (laughs) well I think it's like if you don't have ambitions to work towards or goals I mean pretty hard to get up in the morning. One of the first lessons I learned when I joined Powell Street Festival is
1: that um, the organization, for good reason, uh, really values consensus and that consensus building takes a very long time and requires careful listening and patience and generosity.
0: Well, that's a new, not a new model by any means. That's a model that a lot of Indigenous communities have used for years. And it usually results in a very positive experience for people, as opposed to a dictator, this is how it's going to be. Um, can you tell me a bit, now you, you talked a bit about how a lot of the community doesn't have access to computers. So you are going to be streaming events are you, during the festival, and I'm wondering if you're organizing group watches or things like that for the people that don't have the access to the computer? What, what all are you doing? Uh,
1: well, there is the possibility that one of our partner organizations will have a screen and people in a physical distancing way will be able to go and watch some of the telethon, but that's... Uh, not something that w- we can advertise it's got to be word of mouth on the street because uh also it could change overnight because as the numbers you know as this, the health situation changes but we have actually created these very intimate uh, uh, opportunities to connect with the community and um, in particular we're having a it's a uh, what we've called a giving ceremony. It's basically a performance piece that uh, is symbolic of the reciprocal relationship that Powell Street Festival has with the neighborhood residents. And uh, we, will, we have a choreographed exchange that, that um, respects the physical distancing needs and um, creates uh, a, a opportunity for performance fee for people in the neighborhood, and um, we'll be giving Toroski-wrapped care packages to folks. That is uh, the this intimate little piece of a massive project we're doing right now of distributing 1,500 care packages to people in the neighborhood. Um, we have uh, a them, which is challenging during COVID. Yes, yes. It requires very... Um, Uh, on-the-ground network of communication and distribution system, 800 of them are going to unhoused people in the neighborhood, another uh, 250 through our partner organizations, Uh, uh, another small group to uh, Chinese seniors, and another larger batch to people living in SROs. Those are those those are all different distribution yes, systems would need that to are, yeah. are um, people who have been working on the front lines throughout uh, COVID-19, and one of our our core people, Kathy Shimizu, has been been um, spearheading that and the community kitchen project for Powell Street Festival. It's Ambitious,
0: and uh, we're in the midst of it. So I'm a little bit like flighty <laughs> no, today no, because no, I mean that's an amazing undertaking because first of all, you, you can't just walk into an SRO and give out food.
1: You can't, but you also can't walk into a grocery store these days and buy 1,500 pieces of every anything that's because true. because of COVID-19 and the restrictions. Right. So there are all these fine layers of complexity uh, this year for every kind of um, every piece of programming that one might want to present in a cultural or social context
0: (laughs) and once you're done with this year of course there'll be a big debrief I mean uh, I bet there will be things that you've discovered this year that you'll carry forward into future festivals even if you were able to just go right back to the festival in the same format next year That's true, and all I
1: can tell you at this point is I understand next year will not look like, 2019. Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) I can't think past that. We're
0: having. You probably can't think past uh, a weekend from
1: now. I can't. No, truly, we're. This is this. We moving our programming to a live stream has so many layers of. technology and impact on, on presentation that we have had to learn and think through. What's been really exciting is that we um, have been able to bring in people with expert experience in different areas. And every time we had a conversation, the bar rose and it got higher and higher. And so for me now, like initially back in end of April, it's like, okay, yeah, well we'll just, we'll just do it, we'll just go online. <laughs> and then, and then you slowly, you know, slowly you've got a, a producer and she's asking questions and a set designer and you have like amazing professional MCs, uh, <laughs> Tetsuro Shigematsu and Yorie Hoyoyan. Oh, wow. And they're like crafting an entire narrative and you realize, oh, Every conversation, the expectations are getting higher and higher and greater and greater. We've actually put together something that's really solid. So now the real responsibility for the organization is to make sure we get eyes on
0: that screen. Well, and I think that's uh, having just, I, I would just echo that. We just did the Dancing on the Edge Festival and it was a mix of live we had five live performances and the rest were all screened and I truly thought it would be a lot simpler than it was the naivety (laughs) of it was just amazing that I went how can I be so naive but also what we did learn was that that um I don't think people are prepared to and I don't know what your situation is but um to pay to see things that are screened they they they, we did do a registration fee for some of the performances, and people registered, but they're, they're more prepared to donate once they see right. oh, these scenes to on on, on on Screen. So this is something that, because of course all arts groups are looking at streaming right now, that we have to consider what people's comfort level is in terms of accessing information mm. on screen.
1: That's really interesting. Powell Street Festival is a free event Right, well, so and you made a
0: great choice. We well, have well, that's well, a historic. Well, it's it's been it's a historic open event. and yeah. it gives
1: yeah. everybody access to it. It it supports our our value of inclusivity and uh, but it also has meant that we haven't had to um, worry so much about that. And we've had I have to say that the the 1500 care packages is supported by Vancouver Foundation and then every level of government that gives us arts funding. Um, their immediate response to uh, the, the the pandemic crisis really helped Powell Street Festival mm-hmm. they were really clear and relaxed around allocations so it enabled us to be confident we could hire experts and create you know make sure that these people in arts, had got got gigs that were professionally paid without that whole layer of anxiety that's usually attached to to every contract that you
0: sign Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're gonna make any from anything money from the box office yeah no that's one (laughs) of the uh, wonderful things about bowel street has been that it's always been free and if i mean if you're streaming online and everything's free it's figuring out how as you said how to get the word out which is partly what we will will certainly post this um the contact information um so that that helps um and uh i i don't that was the other thing that we realized was that we did have to we did do some social media ads that did drive people to the site but i we haven't done an analysis to figure out whether or not it actually what more we could have done yeah, it, it'll but be you interesting have a to learn. Powell a, Street has a following, so people are going to be looking for this information. I think. I hope. I don't know. You know, it. I, going on a hot, BC
1: day-long weekend, to Powell Street to have a uh, some down-home Japanese cooking and see some musician or dancer you don't know, a film, and uh, old friends, new friends, is very different from turning on your computer. And uh, so for me, it's not uh, any kind of solution. Um, I wonder, I think a lot of us throughout the pandemic have been in a situation where we're in back-to-back conference calls. And uh, so then on your weekend, are you really going to get your cultural hit by turning on your computer?
0: Well, I, I, I think... You've hit on something that's that's really important Uh, because I don't, I mean, I don't think people are seeking out their screens right now. They're Mm -hmm. seeking out the sun or backyard barbecues. Connection to people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe, uh, maybe... When they're connecting to people, they're bubble people, they might want to throw up a screen to see what you guys are up to. <laughs> That's right. And I would say that uh, this, it, because Powell Street is the one
1: opportunity for people, there are people who are accustomed to seeing friends and extended family during the Powell Street Festival weekend, and it is the one time during the year that they would. So our stream does enable people to connect through a chat. Okay. And we're hoping, and we've, we've, you know,
0: kind of built in some of those points of contact. So just for those people who are hearing this and want to investigate this, what what might they see on the telethon? What kind of things are happening on the telethon? Well, as I mentioned,
1: we will be taken care of by uh, Tetsuro Shikamatsu and Yurie Hoyan throughout the five hours. It's at 2 o'clock until 7 o'clock. The on op- the
0: first thirty.
1: Oh, it's August, Saturday, August, August 1st, 30th. from 2 until 7. And you can experience it from our website, powellstreetfestival.com. Super easy. It opens on the rooftop of the language school. Opening ceremony government canned messages and, of course, taiko drumming, because we have to wake up the spirits of our ancestors. And uh, and the day goes from there. We have uh, some live performances, some canned material. And uh, throughout, Greg Masuda's documentary of the 35th anniversary of Powell Street Festival, it's called Spirit of Nihomachi, will be playing. That documentary is from the perspective of uh, a couple, some downtown Eastside residents, and it is super special because it has the sounds and the like the atmospheric sounds of the Powell Street Festival weekend. It opens with setup, and uh, and you know, you. you Hear some drumming and you see a lot of sumo kind of exchange and development throughout the, the arc of the documentary. And uh, it closes with the festival being packed up and the, <laughs> the truck door being closed at uh, dusk. So it's uh, it actually, I'm, I'm so thrilled that we were, that we have that record yeah. for yeah. one and two, that we were able to bring it to this audience because I really feel that it will bring the festival into people's homes.
0: The one thing that we learned with Dancing on the Edge is that people watch from around the may watch from around the world. So if you have anyone that has contacts beyond, remind them because it gives them a chance to see what you guys are doing here. And I think they'll be very impressed with not only what they're going to see, but finding out more about your organization. That's a really good point we do
1: we, we're seeing that with some of our pre-telethon activities as well we have a national and international uh, uh, representation participating and uh, my my only regret is that in 2018 and 2019 we didn't have anybody running around with a GoPro on their head <laughs> right. Right. because now we are starting to think about um, uh, you know AI and virtual reality and and how but my heart sinks a bit because I feel a little bit like that era of the festival maybe may
0: have passed, maybe done.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I think it was you that said we shouldn't look back at the history. <laughs> so I think you know, yes, in your heart of hearts, you lost that. But in other ways, whatever comes out of this this festival in the future. is going to be equally rich it sounds to me if not more so because it sounds to me like you're making connections that are really important um and building building your, building this the place or the space for this festival to be a, a not just a once a year event in this community but an ongoing active participant which i think you have you have been it's just not been that out there that's correct yes <laughs> and that's
1: the other interesting thing about this telethon we are we able to uh uh bring people along yeah. and explain how uh, if we were for example to end up in a partnership with a housing operator in a historic building how did we get there yeah and that that's a real potential and when we started building this telethon i realized that we have a lot of work to do to um, bring people along so that if that should happen they understand they understand why, why? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah your ability to do this That's yeah right. yeah exactly
0: all right well I know that you've got a lot of things to do so um was there anything else you wanted to share at this point I I hope that people will come tune in, stop in, and
1: see some of the telethon. It will be archived. People can look after the fact as well. But I think some fun, exciting stuff will happen during the broadcast from two until seven on
0: August first. Okay. <laughs> so if if you were um, if if funding was not an issue, and I, this is usually I usually direct this about funding to for the arts. But if funding was not an issue, what would you do? next or in the future?
1: My goodness. Uh, we would just keep on steady on listening to our stakeholders and um, and endeavor to create meaningful program for all of our stakeholders and uh, to work hard to ensure that sustainability piece so that we're here in 50 years from now, hundred years from now.
0: Right. That sounds like a great way to wrap it up, but I'm going to ask you one last thing that I ask everybody. It's, uh, can you give me an example, either verbally or visually, what a dramatic pause is to you? Well,
1: I would have to say that um, taking that moment to breathe in and connect with yourself, I'll take you there.
0: (laughs) That was pretty good. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here today. And I wish you all the best for this weekend, The that the uh, August 1st, uh, which traditionally it was August 1st and 2nd, right? It would have been this year. That's correct. Yeah. And there might have even been some events here at the fire hall. Absolutely. And we will will miss you. (laughs) Dramatic Pause is a podcast created by the Firehall Arts Centre in response to the closure of live performing arts centres across the world in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This action has created the longest dramatic pause in recent history and has affected the livelihoods of countless number of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs, and in turn has affected the lives of countless audience members and patrons who enjoy and believe strongly in the value of the live performing arts. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions or feedback about today's podcast, please direct them to firehall at and we will get back to you as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver, as well as Firehall's many individual donors and supporters. Thank you so much. Enjoy.